Hello everyone and welcome to the very first Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host and producer, Andrew Mensel. Friends and enemies can call me Manners, and this new weekly podcast from News Corp will be focused on all the cricket news and opinions that are going around the cricket world. The men's ashes is just three weeks away and the build-up starts now. For the first show, I have two of the Daily Telegraph's best sports journalists. Welcome to the show, Fiona Boland. How are you, Fiona? I'm really good. Thanks for having me. You were over following the women's cricket team for the World Cup, so it's great that you could come in today. Thank Welcome. you. I've, I've finally recovered. It was a big month over there in the UK, but not the, uh, the result for the Aussies, unfortunately, but an amazing tournament to be at. Now, the other guest on this show is a man who probably sees more of Australian men's cricket than anybody else and is the leading cricket writer at the Daily Telegraph in Sydney. Welcome, Ben Horn. How are you, Ben? I'm good, man. It's great to be here in the in the studio. Yeah, it's the first cricket podcast from News Corp produced by me, so it's very exciting. I've been hosting and producing my own cricket podcast for four years, but now this show is really the beginning of my professional career, so I'm glad you two can be with me for the first one. You've been poached. I've been poached, <laughs> exactly. I'll also have a weekly cricket column, so I can't wait to get that going. Now, in today's show, we're going to get stuck into all the big Ashes issues. We have a wrap of the women's Ashes so far. We are going to uh, wrap up the first round of the Sheffield Shield. And we've also got a special interview with one of the best young batsmen in the country, Curtis Patterson. I sat down with him last week at the SCG. So that's coming up. But let's start with the big build-up to the men's Ashes. It's three weeks away. The English touring squad have arrived in Perth. They're here now. But the big story revolves around one all-rounder, Ben Stokes. News came out on the weekend that he may have been defending two gay men when he got into that infamous fight on the Bristol streets. One of the men said Ben was a real gentleman. Now, I'll start with you, Ben Horn. What Mm. do you think about that story that's come out? And does it change anything for you? Well, there's been whispers about this for quite a while. I mean, Piers Morgan uh, on Twitter uh, put this story out there basically a couple of days after the incident happened. So it's taken a long time for the police to track these two guys down. They've put out multiple uh, SOSs for them to come forward. Look, I mean, it does provide some mitigating circumstances, I suppose, which you always expected there would be, but it doesn't really account for the second half of the video where Ben Stokes seems to get on top and uh, completely uh, demoralise these two other guys in the fight who don't seem to want any further part in it. So it'll be interesting. There's no doubt this is what the ECB, the England Cricket Board, have been waiting for. Um, They've held off on any announcement regarding their internal investigation to wait to see what the police do. We're still waiting to see if the police charge him. If the police don't charge him, I think he may still find his way out here at some point. But if they do charge him, I think it'll be game over. I'm curious as to why it took so long for these guys to come forward. If it was quite a simple act of defence, what was their reason behind staying quiet for so long? That's a different They gave the reason that they didn't know who Ben Stokes was. They just thought it was another incident on the the, the streets of Bristol. They must live in a Bristol cave because (laughs) it was headlines everywhere here. So I can only imagine what it was like in the UK as the team prepares to Not to mention the the local paper. Yeah, the the (laughs) Bristol Times. We spent a bit of time in Bristol when I was over there for the World Cup. But the the story even that these two gentlemen have come out with doesn't 
actually rule Ben Stokes out of getting in trouble. It just says that he may have come to their assistance. They may have been getting hassled. It sort of doesn't even say they were really physically threatened. Well, so, it may have been admirable for him to step in and, and defend them if they were going to end up in a situation where these guys were going to beat them up. But the video but wasn't defence. No, I don't think it excuses mm. him at all because there are – there are many other ways that you can handle that situation mm. without having to go in with your fists and yep. go to town on these guys. So I don't I regardless of whether he's charged or not, I wouldn't want to see him come out here personally and be part of that team. And you wouldn't think he's a good influence on the team anyway. No. No. I totally agree. I think I'm willing to believe this story. But I don't think it changes the fact that he acted kind of really inappropriately. And the very minimum he should be copying is to miss this Ashes series, I would have thought. I mean, he's lucky he's not getting his contract torn up. Yeah, well, he was one point away from disciplinary action anyway. This is the English vice-captain we're talking about. It's not just any other player. So he has to pay the price for his actions. Stuart Broad, in the lead-up to this tour, said, when you go to Australia, you have to have a genuine belief in your team that you can win. And I have that. I believe we can win. So I guess, Ben, do you think England can win? Well, I guess the one thing in their favour is that Australia is themselves in a state of flux, I guess. I mean, they're still looking for two positions to fill in the team and they're not exactly flying themselves. But I don't think England can win without Ben Stokes. I do think that he was probably the key man in the entire series. He's the point of difference. If Australia was to, you know, if there was some kind of, you know, trading system where Australia could choose any player in world cricket to add to their lineup, I think they would choose Ben Stokes. He's the the all-rounder that that they would desperately love to have. So I think his uh, his absence is is pretty massive, and that's why I think England have left the door open. I mean, the, the fact that they have not come down with a firm determination on what's going to happen with him, I think, says that they're waiting on the police. If the police don't charge him, I still think they're looking at ways of getting him here. I don't think there's any way he'll play the first test at the Gabba. But I wouldn't rule out maybe around the third test. Yeah, or even by Boxing Day, if he's here for the Christmas New Year period. Mm. I think there is something, though, that I'm worried that the fact that Stokes is not there, the players feel that their ego has been a little bit slighted, that everybody says England can't win without Ben Stokes. I mean, last summer I said South Africa can't beat Australia without A.B. de Villiers or Dale Steyn, and lo and behold, they won. So do you think that could come into it, Ben? you think the other players feeling that they've been slighted by the media and written off will come good? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't look like they're, they've turned on Ben Stokes at all. I mean, they, they seem to all be uh, haven't said supportive anything. of his Where are the English team? <laughs> they literally haven't made a comment for the last two months. But they, yeah, look, they, this happens in sport, doesn't it? I mean, these kind of things can galvanise teams. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, it may have that effect on... On England, I think it all comes down to whether Australia can keep their fast bowling trio on the park for long enough in this series. If Australia can get Cummins, Stark and Hazelwood all firing for the first couple of matches, I just don't think England have enough weaponry to compete with that. So there's just a lot of inexperienced guys at the top of their order. So, yeah, it, they might be galvanised by it, but I'm, I'm struggling to see how they have enough weapons in their team. Good news for Australian listeners. So speaking about those two spots in the Australian side that are up for grabs, the highly anticipated Sheffield Shield season has started 
Well, let's go through all the test aspirants and how they've gone in that, that first round of Shield cricket. Queensland, New South Wales and Western Australia all got wins in the first round. But there was a noticeable lack of success from the number six contenders in the Australian batting lineup. Let's go through the list. Hilton Cartwright made 61 and 38. I heard Jeff Lawson making the point last week that he thought Hilton Cartwright was a hard wicket player. I think he's pretty close to being in that number six spot at the moment, probably one or two down the list. But, Ben, I think he's he's pretty close to that number six spot. Yeah, I agree. I think Hilton Cartwright, if you were going to call a favourite at the moment, it would be him. Firstly, he is the incumbent. <laughs> he did play in the in the last test they played in Bangladesh. And secondly, he, he's got off to a half-decent start over there with a 61 and a 38. So I think he's the, the leading contender. Look, we don't know uh, what he's got to offer yet, but... You know, he deserves, I think, more of a chance. I mean, he's, he's played... been a consistent shield run scorer. Mm. You know, people look for success at shield cricket. They worry that the selectors promote players that haven't done well at first class level, but he's done really well. Yeah, and, you know, he's only played two test matches, and, he, and Australia's won both of them, which, you know. Lucky in, charm, perhaps. In the current climate, is nothing to be uh, scoffed at. Sean Marsh is an interesting one uh, because he is in scintillating form at the moment. He didn't kick on to get 100 in the Shield game, but he was just killing it in the one-day cup. And people like Justin Langer are saying that, you know, they haven't seen Sean Marsh play better. But the selectors have a real kind of, um, I guess, uh, decision to make there on what policy they want, they want here. Do they want to go back to a 34-35-year-old? Well, you know, when or, or if it's a line ball decision, do you not look to the future? So uh, that's an interesting one. I think that those two are definitely the leading candidates. A because so you think Carwright and Sean Marsh are the leading candidates. That's wow. that's how I would. But place Sean Marsh it. wasn't even picked for the Bangladesh tour. So well, neither was Steve O'Keefe. <laughs> he yeah. made it over there halfway through. Look, I think they did with O'Keefe and Sean Marsh. I think after India, there was definitely a soft decision made to move on because we didn't see either of those guys get picked for the next series, and they both performed pretty well in the Indian series. So I think there was a soft decision made to move on, but winning comes ahead of all else, I guess. And in Bangladesh, they found themselves one down, called in Steve O'Keefe as an emergency. And Sean Marsh has been a a favourite for a while, and if he's in good form and no one else is, then I suppose you can't rule him out. So I think it's they're the leading contenders, and the fact that WA, who they both play for, are playing the playing New South Wales this week, uh, an attack that should feature Stark, Cummins, Hazelwood on a small ground where runs usually are pretty pretty easy to come by. I, I think that this is the key match, and I think if Marsh or Cartwright can make a hundred in this game, they can go pretty close to sewing it up. Is it basically a decision between current form or looking to the future and making sure you can have someone there long term? Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think a lot of people would look at the Ashes and say it's about winning and, you know, forget planning for the future. And I think there's something to that. But every time Australia's perhaps done that in the past, you know, six months down the track, we're, we're no better for it. So, you know, I, I think it does need to be made with, with a look to the future as well. They go to South Africa after after they finish with this summer and then there, there's a couple of other series next year as well. So... I don't know about that. Don't you think mm. this is the, that's the problem with the number six spot? They've always looked to the future rather than who's performing right now? Well, it's a balancing act, isn't it? I mean, Sean Marsh, like, you could make the same argument that they just keep recycling through yeah, these same like guys. Yeah, recall if yeah. he gets picked. I mean, I just think, you know, if they're going to give someone a go, two tests is not enough of a go. No. And Cartwright, uh, if he is the person they decide, deserves more. I'll just say um, maybe one 
absolute smoky, um, and he would need to f- follow it up with with a hundred in in the next two games. But uh, Daniel Hughes was picked ahead of uh, Ed Cowan controversially for that first match. There is no way Daniel Hughes will be playing in the Ashes. <laughs> well, they they did seem to indicate that he's maybe more of a plan for the future, but he made a fifty in very tough conditions in Adelaide where no one stood up. And uh, he's a pretty tidy player. I, I just uh, I wouldn't completely rule it out if if he makes 100, but he's got to make one. He's one of Smith's mates as well, which seems to... Well, that's what I was going to say. How much does Steve Smith play in this as well? And who's in favour with him? Uh, he, he picked Hughes for that Shield game, yeah. so that's Smith's decision. All right, next contender, someone that I really like, Marcus Stoinis. He made 9-32 and 32 in the last Shield round. He did bowl nine overs as well. Now, he's moved back to Perth for personal reasons. Ben, you wrote a very heartfelt piece on the weekend about Marcus's situation. Do you just want to tell the listeners a bit about the personal troubles? And I guess the important thing to notice is someone like him, you know, he's at the point of maybe being picked for Australia, yet he's dealing with a lot of stuff off the field. Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of been one of those things in cricket that, a lot of people have known about, but it, it, you know, due to obvious reasons, it being quite private, it, it hasn't um, been disclosed. But Marcus Stoinis's father is um, battling serious cancer, and uh, yeah, that's the reason why he's left Victoria to go back home. Uh, it's the reason why he missed the One Day Cup final the other day because um, his dad was due to have an operation, but just beforehand, it, it's you know something that he's had to carry around. And I know speaking to a few key people in Australian cricket, uh, they feel like he's first-class performances over the last year or two have been affected by this situation because he didn't have a good Shield season at all last year. So it's it's a lot for a young guy to carry around. He's had an excellent year in one-day cricket. Uh, he averages close to 90. And I know that, that... fantastic century for Australia and mm, New Zealand. I know that, yeah, people that matter in, in Australian cricket are very impressed by his calm demeanour and his ability to handle those pressure situations. Um Test cricket's a different kettle of fish, but yeah, there's a lot of people who think that he does have what it takes, uh, and the fact he can bowl a bit is handy, although I'm not sure whether he's a test-class bowler, but the fact that he can just he can be relied upon for a few overs could be, could be all the difference. So it's important, I think, to not read too much into that first shield round for two reasons. One, there's another two matches to go. And that's the beauty of having. They're picking the side after the next one, so really, no, they're, they're not, not. No, after the after the third, so they will get Is all that three matches then? in. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I hadn't heard any either way, but it's being picked after the third game. The other point is that this was a pink ball round, the first one, and you just look at the three results, and bizarre things were were happening in those three matches. So I think it it it, it adds a lot of weight to the guys who did make runs in those conditions, but I don't think it kills the chances of those who failed because there's so many variables in those pink ball matches that I think that the next two will be important as well. Travis Head's another one that you talk about getting some tough deliveries. He got a a corker from Mitchell Stark in the second innings in his Sheffield Shield match, and he was out for a golden duck. But Travis Head is someone that I would be very comfortable with batting six for Australia in the Ashes. He can bowl some handy little spinners. He's looked assured at the crease when he's played for Australia in one-day cricket and I think looks ready for the step up. I think he's definitely someone that they would like to pick, but I'm not sure he's done enough in first-class cricket to warrant it. I think his average is sort of in the mid-30s, which is probably no different to some of these other guys we're talking about as well. But I think uh, Head definitely is someone that they like, but I think he might have a bit more work to do. That's, That's my gut feel. But as I said... 
maybe in these two red ball games to come up, he can he can show something. Yeah, he's not far off. Another one who's not far off is Curtis Patterson. He made 14 and a duck. I think he's an outside chance for playing test cricket at the moment. But if he has a good shield summer, we'll definitely be knocking pretty hard on the door. And then there's the universally divisive Glenn Maxwell. He's now been pushed up the order for Victoria, so Matty Wade's not there to bat him at seven. So Maxwell batted at three in this Shield game. He made seven and 20. But I genuinely believe Steve Smith and Darren Lehman have problems with Glenn Maxwell. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I'm not sure about, you know, exactly which personnel, but I think that there is a bit of uh, scepticism about about him. I mean, I'll give you something, Horn. Mitch Marsh was given 21 test matches to find his feet at test level. He averaged 20 with the bat, yet he played over 20 tests, which is a lot. Glenn Maxwell has just played seven tests. So he's never really been given a run. He's never played a test at home. Well, yeah, he's never played a test at home, and I guess that's the the key thing. He has a very good first-class record if you look at his domestic first-class record. So in that sense, maybe he deserves a go. But, I mean, he won't get a better chance than this. I mean, they've put him at number three. That's like they're giving him the absolute best opportunity to, to get in this side. So he's got two more chances with the red ball. Batting conditions were diabolical it seemed up in uh, the Gabba certainly in the first innings anyway uh, so he, he's a chance uh, I thought he batted very very well when given a chance in India and you know probably missed a chance in, in Bangladesh but yeah that's the key thing a lot of these guys haven't been given a chance at home Moses Onreeks is another one who hasn't played a test at home uh, he's grown up playing here his whole life Matt Wade has played more than half of his career in the subcontinent uh, so it's true of a few players that Perhaps they haven't had the chance uh, to show the best of themselves in the conditions that suit them best. So hopefully Glenn Maxwell might get that chance in the first test. Another player that definitely won't get a chance to play in the first Ashes test, but he was the leading run scorer in the Sheffield Shield last year, Ed Cowan. He was uh, dumped from the New South Wales side for the first game of this summer. I just think it's really strange that the leading run scorer from the Sheffield Shield is not even in contention for a test spot this year. You could do worse than having Cowan bat at six in the Ashes or even bat at three. Yeah, look, it's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, I I think it was probably the wrong call. I think they should have picked him in this New South Wales game uh, because it just I, I just think it sends a really confusing message about what's the point of the Sheffield Shield if you can be the leading run scorer and not get picked for your state. That just seems ridiculous. But in terms of his test prospects, I mean, absolutely, he, you know, based on his last few years, he should be in contention. But by his own admission, um, he, he hasn't felt like he's in condition, sorry, contention based on the attitude of the selectors. So I, I don't think he has the game that Lehman likes. I mean, you can draw a, a line... And as soon as Lehman took over the Australian squad, Cowan was pushed out. So um, yeah, yeah. he doesn't play the aggressive brand of cricket yeah. Australia are looking for. Yeah, and but at a time like this where our batting collapses have just got worse and worse, uh, it is difficult to understand how you can just write someone off like that, it, which is why I think Sean Marsh is a, is a contender, even though he is 34, and, and I think Cowan should probably fit into the same boat. But um. But if we have a situation where Matt Renshaw or, or someone struggles in the first couple of tests, perhaps you do look to a more experienced guy like a Cowan or, or a Sean Marsh. But with what's happened, they've sort of taken Cowan as an option off the table. Right. Now to the wicket-keeping position. Really, rumours are just floating about now. Even Adam Gilchrist said on the radio that he thinks Alex Carey will be the first 
the first keeper picked for the Ashes and given a chance ahead of Pete Neville, ahead of Matt Wade. Would you be happy with that decision? I really don't know, to be honest. Like, I think I find the keeping question a lot harder than the number six batting question. To a certain degree, I think Matt Wade perhaps should be given the chan- the, the best chance to save himself. He, he scored no runs in Perth, so clearly he needs to score some big runs for Tasmania. But if he does, I think perhaps he should be looked at more favourably than the other two because if, if wicket-keeping means something, the actual art of catching the ball, I mean, he has improved his game in that area. I don't think Pete Neville should have been dropped in the first place, but then if you go and drop Matt Wade, then you're sort of just going around in circles, and and uh, I don't think picking that position for for on the right merits. All I know is that there was a lot of talk about about Alex Carey quite early. Uh, I mean, he he was meant to go on that Australia A tour to South Africa, so they, the selectors clearly have been looking at him even way in advance of of the situation this summer. So I think at the very least, Alex Carey is in serious contention. I don't know. I'd, I'd, if Matt Wade can find something with the bat, I'd stick with him. Yeah, I think Carey's the front runner. Neville second, Wade third. From that fir- that first Sheffield Shield round, one player did score some runs. Usman Khawaja made forty and one hundred and twenty-two. So great to have the number three for Australia back in form. And then just to wrap up this chat about the Shield. I think Chad Sayers may have given up on playing Test Cricket for Australia because he dismissed Steve Smith LBW and then gave him a massive send-off. And the story goes that apparently last year in the day-night test, Chad Sayers was told he would make his test debut and then Steve Smith at the last minute pulled the baggy green away and said, no, no, we're going to give Jackson Bird the game. So I think there was a little bit of tension there and uh, Chad Sayers perhaps got his revenge. I didn't see it, man, but it was the send-off. It was, a good it was a very good send off. <laughs> very good send off. He certainly let him know uh, that he was heading back to the pavilion. So that was the opening round of the Sheffield Shield. I don't think any round of Sheffield Shield cricket has been more closely watched than that one was, and I'm sure the same will be this weekend. Now to the Ashes series that has started, the women's Ashes. It is well and truly underway. We saw a great game on Sunday, England clawing their way back in the women's ashes, Fiona. You know, it looked going into that third ODI that if Australia could win the third ODI and go six points up in the point system, they would really have one hand on the urn. But England fought back, as you would expect, from the world champions. Most definitely. I think had Australia won that ODI, it was pretty much all over. They only needed another two points in the multi-format system to claim the Ashes because they're the current holders. So going into the test with it on the line, it's 4-2 now with England having come back into it. But again, if Australia win the test, it's all over. But let's, I'd like to hope for the sake of the series that England can win this test. But oh, it's, come on. It's a real unknown pink ball test for the first time ever for the women. They don't know what they're going into. You speak to some of the players and ask them what they're expecting and they – quite simply say we don't know England didn't quite have the preparation with the pink ball that they would have liked so I think they're a little bit uneasy about it but Australia as well can only hope that they know what it's going to do but they're all going to be learning in the match well I think England looked better in that 30 ODI so they're coming to grips with the conditions over here Definitely. huge validation for women's cricket that the third ODI was moved from channel Nine's second channel onto the main channel even though as soon as it looked like Australia was going to lose, they cut the coverage at about 5.30, <laughs> yeah. right, like almost <laughs> in the middle of an over. I was, I turned around and it was gone. But 
What an achievement for women's cricket to be on the main channel Sunday afternoon. They got figures over 300,000 people watching in the afternoon. So I think the the, the day-night test will be really exciting. And, you know, we're seeing the growth in, in viewing figures. The organisations are really getting behind women's sport now, not just in cricket. It's across the board. But Cricket Australia have really been leading the way in that. But for it to come off, the media have to get behind it as well because without the coverage, then the investment that they're making doesn't get fulfilled. So Channel 9 did the right thing, I think, by by giving it a run. And one of the T20s will also be on Channel 9, the second one, I believe it is, in Canberra, the first Canberra T20. Can't wait. I'll be there. Yeah, so will I. We'll be there together. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, a couple of standouts from the series so far. In the second ODI, Rachel Haynes made 89 not out of 56 balls. That is a very impressive strike rate for women's cricket. And I thought it was an important innings for her. She's taken over as, as captain. Meg Lanning's obviously injured. She's come in sort of over the top of Alex Blackwell, who was vice captain. I think it was important for Haynes to put her, her mark not only on the series as captain, but also with the bat just to, to ease her into the job. That was an impressive innings, and it propelled Australia to six for 296. England fell well short, making just 209. But, yeah, I think Rachel Haynes is a great story. Almost gave up cricket, and now yeah. she's the skipper. I think if you speak to a lot of those older players, they have a similar story in that they nearly gave up cricket and then professionalism started creeping in, so they hung in there, and it's paid off for them. But I love how Rachel Haynes has been playing through this series. I, I like her as a player as well. I think she's very cool-headed, and she's been captaining that way too. It's a tough situation to come in, be promoted over the vice-captain and given control of the team with uh, Meg Lanning out injured. But she's she's done it fantastically, and she's been captaining on instinct and, and making the changes when she felt they needed to happen. And it, they may have lost their way a little bit in that third ODI, and they kind of went back a bit to how they were playing in the World Cup. They lost their way in those middle overs. The bowlers lost a bit of control in England. That's when England really got away from them uh, and put the runs on the board because in those early overs, they, they really had them against the wall a bit. But, yeah, she's done great, and it, it's not her usual game to make runs that quickly. Mm. So she, under pressure, she came in and did what she had to do. I think... It's incredibly impressive what she's done, but also what Alex Blackwell's done because, yeah. like, I mean, I still disagree with the decision to give Haynes the captaincy. I just don't think that that was the way that it should have been done, but it's not her fault. And uh, the way that she stood up is is um, you know, really impressive. And the way that Alex Blackwell clearly hasn't sort of let it affect her game and she hasn't dwelled on it in any, you know, it's, it's really kind of, I suppose, shows what kind of character she is to be able to go out there and deliver match-winning performances. So I think it's, especially without Meg Lanning there, it's been an important period for the culture of the team to have these two players in very bizarre circumstances yeah. to you know deal with it as well as they have. There's a lot of talk in women's sport about them being role models. Uh, I don't think you can find many better than Alex Blackwell and what you said, Ben, about how she's handled this whole situation is is exactly right. And she, she pops it on the chin as if she's given... A reasonable explanation for why the decision was made and she's accepted it and said that's fine I'm happy to go with that but at the World Cup to watch Alex in person I think she gave away every cap to the kids who walked out with them at the start of the match and they must have run out of caps for her because 
after each time she handed it over and after the Pakistan match one of the Pakistan batters came up to her and asked for some advice on batting and Alex sat there with her for maybe 20 minutes or so to explain some of the things that she could be doing to improve her game how often do you see that well she's just achieved a significant milestone Alex Blackwell playing her 250th game for Australia in the third ODI James Sutherland said Alex is a fantastic example of continuing to perform at her best whilst inspiring many younger cricketers to pick up a bat and ball and play cricket. So great achievement for her. She's now the most capped Australian women's player. Congratulations. And Australia are four points to two ahead in the women's ashes going into the day-night test next episode we'll feature an interview with one of the women's players yes I just want to say that there are expected to be some changes going into the test Matthew Motts uh, confirmed yesterday that Alyssa Healy will not be opening the batting because she's the wicket keeper Um, I was speaking to Lisa Stalaker the other day and she expects there to be some reshuffling around maybe some pressure taken off four days four days of cricket yep so um, watch this space could be someone like Beth Mooney coming back in to open the batting or um, perhaps Rachel Haynes could uh, be promoted or even Alex Blackwell she's been batting very well all right, so the build-up to that test will be on the podcast next week. As I said, we'll be interviewing one of the stars from the women's team. Now, before we move on and listen to a special interview I did with Curtis Patterson last week, I just want to remind you all that the Cricket Unfiltered podcast will be here all summer. So please subscribe on iTunes or whatever app you listen to podcasts on. If you want to tweet me any questions, I'm at Amenas on Twitter, A. M-E-N-N-E-R-S, or you can email me at auscricketpod, that's A-U-S cricketpod at gmail.com. If you want to send in any topics for us to discuss or questions for some of these great sports journalists, please send them in. Now, we're going to cross now to the interview I did with Curtis Patterson, but Ben, he was Curtis was very close to playing for Australia last year, perhaps only just one spot out, really. Well, I think he was, yeah, perhaps he was in at one point and then and then at the very 11th hour, um, Nick Maddinson got the jump on him. So I don't think you could be closer to uh, making your test debut than what Patterson was, which I guess is in one way an encouraging sign, but another way it's probably a little bit frustrating getting that so clo- getting so close and, and missing out, especially when there's a big generational shift in the team. They dropped five players for that for that test last year. But, yeah, he's an excellent player. He, um, he's he got a very composed style, and uh, I'm sure uh, we'll see him play for Australia at some point. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and then I will be back with Curtis Patterson. Oh, that's a clever shot. He gets right inside it, and the first six of the evening will play Curtis Patterson. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, and I'm very happy to have our very first special guest, New South Wales batsman and a test hopeful, Curtis Patterson. Welcome to the show, Curtis. Thanks for having me, Andrew. When I was doing my research into this interview, I saw that you said to the Australian newspaper that you think good players going forward are going to be those capable of self-reflection. Well, podcasts are a perfect medium for that. I guess we can sort of step back and relax a little bit and chat about your career. But how is it and why do you think good players need to be able to self-reflect? Uh, I guess I just, you know, I'm sure there's a there's a fair bit of research out there about, you know, 
uh, you learn, you learn, and you you develop your game. I think best when you when you learn from yourself. I've been having you know some good chats with Paddy Upton, who's coached at Sydney Thunder, who's very very strong into that space. And uh, you know the research shows that I think you retain you know plus upwards of eighty percent of of what you of uh, of your skill when it's when it's developed on your own rather than told by someone else. So I just think it's a it's a really important thing. And I think personally, I've found some success uh, and I guess some some strengths in, in my game improve once I've you know put a bit of work into it myself and rather than relied on coaches and do you find there's a balance though between thinking too much about your game and reflecting how, how do you sort of maintain that balance because I know some batsmen they can get caught in their own head a little bit yeah it's a really tough one I guess you know you certainly want to make sure that you're your queries and your questions aren't coming from a, a thought of you know am I am I good enough or or that kind of thing uh right now especially at shield cricket level I know that I'm, I'm good enough and I feel comfortable at this level so I guess now it's just for me it's just about continuously learning trying to learn off as many people as I can whether that's coaches or batters uh, you know fellow batters but uh, it certainly is a tough one to find that right balance between you know thinking the right amount and overthinking that's for sure. And, and do you find that when you've been able to self-reflect you've come up with some answers about what it is that makes you successful you know what mindset you need to get in at the crease to be successful have you found some answers there uh yeah I'd say so for sure I guess early on in my career I was probably uh pretty confused you know did I want to be that player that ran off emotions or you know played really aggressively you know internally at least you know having an aggressive attitude or all that kind of thing and I guess that I've found that I'm just one that probably plays at my best when I am relaxed um, you know pre-game during the game just to be able to to go out there and and be able to think clearly on what I do and just be out there and and enjoy it I think that's certainly the thing that's worked for me and no coaches have, have obviously taught you that it's just one of those things you learn along the way. I want to move on now to talk about the New South Wales side. At the moment, the New South Wales Shield squad has all the test players available. How does the mood in the camp change when you have all the test players around and, you know, Smith and Warner and that are at training? Yeah, it's been great. I think, the, you know, the guys have had some filming the last couple of weeks. So, so Davey and, and Smithy haven't been around uh, until this afternoon, which would be nice. But uh, no, I mean, having having Josh and Mitchell and, and Nathan Lyon around has been fantastic for everyone. Uh, obviously, they're, they're just about the best in the world at what they do. So you can only get better being around them and just as a batter facing them continuously. It, uh, it's certainly great for your game. And I think probably most importantly, they're also just great people to have around. Does it lift the intensity a little? Uh no, I, I don't think it does, no. I mean, it's obviously a step up in, in skill. You know, you're facing guys that are probably more skillful than the average the average state cricketer. But I think here at New South Wales, we're really good with our with our intensity, particularly, you know, once a week we, we really have a, have a full-on game intensity session and, uh, and that's been working really well this year. And so I'm guessing you've had a few uncomfortable net sessions facing Mitchell Stark and Pat Cummins recently. Are they bowling very quick? How are they looking heading into the Ashes? Yeah, I think they're both hitting their stride at the at the right time. Obviously, Mitch uh, came back in through the the JLT One Day Cup. He had a sore foot leading into that. You know, I th- certainly think he's he's blown those cobwebs out. I think the game against Queensland, he pretty much back to back to full pace and full control. And certainly looking forward to having him for what should be a really good pink ball game to to start off the season in Adelaide. Yeah, you you're going to be happy when you don't have to face them in the nets anymore. Absolutely, yeah. It's a, it is a good challenge, but obviously at times it can be uh, it can be quite intimidating as well. Now you're a young up and coming batsman. You've you've got this lucky opportunity to be around probably the best batsman in the world at the moment in in Steve Smith. What do you learn from him when you see him go about his work? Yeah, it's a good question. I actually I really enjoy just watching just watching him bat. To be honest, uh, same as Davey, they're you know they're 
obviously two world-class players, um, but they're quite different in their own way as well. So it's nice just to watch how they go about not only them batting in the middle, but also batting at, at training, uh, I guess, to kind of can't really see what they're thinking, but kind of just see the way they react to you know, different situations in nets and the way they play different bowlers. It's, um, it's just always... Always good to see new new people do that, but you know, let alone two of the best in the world, it's certainly good fun. How do they differ then in their approach to the nets? Is one more serious in the nets, or is one more casual? How how would they go about it? Uh, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I think they're both uh, they're both pretty casual, whilst you know being you know still focused at the same time. They're obviously both you know very free flowing players. So in that respect, they're they're similar, but it's just nice to watch, I guess, both of them in in full flight, and I guess playing with with no real pressure in the nets. It's always fun to see some some interesting shots. I've seen Warner; he plays a lot of uh, right-handed shots in the nets. I see him switch his grip a few times. Maybe that's just before the T Twenty stuff. Yeah, I mean, I haven't actually seen seen too much of that. But have our, you thought about going right-handed? No, I certainly haven't. But our chairman of selectors here thinks Davey would average average forty in second grade batting right-handed. So that's a pretty good testament. I think <laughs> yeah, he's a pretty good right-hander. He had that big six at the... Yeah, Ravi Ashwin, yeah. Yeah, huge. Now, with Steve Smith then, I guess, do you seek him out for advice as a batsman? Not captains-wise, but just as another young New South Wales batsman, do you sort of try and glean some wisdom off him? Yeah, of course. You know, whenever he is around at training, um, you certainly don't want to... Don't want to push anything. You want it to all be, you know. Don't want to annoy him too much. Yeah, of course. And you want him to, to be able to focus on his game as well because he's got a job to do, obviously. But no, whenever batting conversations come up, which they which they tend to do, you know, not just one on one, but in in group situations, it's always it's always good just to you know maybe eavesdrop to start and then hop in and, and kind of ask a few questions around those boys. It's um, certainly worthwhile. Is there anything in particular you picked up that stands out? Uh, I think with with Smithy. You know, just, I mean, this is my personal take, just watching him from when he played, you know, five, six years ago to now, his his shot selection is uh, some of the best I've ever seen. Uh, I don't really think he's developed too many more shots than what he had when he, you know, before he got dropped when he when he played, but it just seems like he, he rarely makes mistakes. And I think that's one of it, you know, that's a really good sign of a, of a great player is is how minimal mistakes they make, you know, both with the bat and obviously for, for Steve in the field as well. Now, recently to the Daily Telegraph, you said the Ashes hasn't entered my thoughts and I don't feel any extra pressure. Now, your name has been thrown up there as the vacant number six spot. So you, you try not to focus on that? Is that your plan, just to put it out of your head? Uh, yeah, I'm, it's not really in my head at all, to be honest. Um, you not know, even I, a little bit when no, you go to bed? No, it's really not. I, I, I mean what I said there. It's, you know, it's purely focused with New South Wales at the moment. You know, I feel like personally that my game's good enough to, to play at that level, but you know, I have to I have to go out there and show it, and this is the the perfect way to show it is, is obviously scoring scoring big runs at shield level. So yeah, my, my focus has purely been with New South Wales on the JLT Cup, and then obviously you know missing out on that last week. Now it's now it's turned to to shield cricket and uh, and the longer form, and I'm really looking forward to, to getting out there with with all the normal teammates, but also having the Aussies back. It's going to be it's going to be brilliant. Also very unlucky to miss out on the JLT Cup, I might add. But- in the same interview you talked about at the Daily Telegraph, you talked about trying to convert your starts into big scores. Is that something you see as vital to maybe pushing for higher honours is, is making those 40s and 50s into big tons? Yeah, no doubt. You know, you're certainly not going to get picked, you know, just by scoring those, you know, 30s to 30s to 70s. You know, the selectors, it's it's pretty obvious we want 
you know, the Australian team wants people that can score big runs. Uh, you know, and to be fair, I probably haven't shown that I can just, just yet. So uh, I've been happy with how consistent I've been in terms of making those starts at least. Uh, I think that's important to at least acknowledge from a personal point of view so I don't get too down on myself. But but no doubt that there's, uh, there's plenty of work to, to be done in terms of building on those and, and getting some big scores this summer. Is it about, you know, honing your concentration? And, you know, I know your dad was a big influence on your career. Do you still seek him out for advice or have you moved on from that? No, I mean, I, I probably don't seek him out as uh, you know so much these days. But he certainly still, when he comes along to, to to our home games here in Sydney, or you know certainly for games in the JLT JLT Cup, he'll, he'll give me a phone call every now and then and, and let me know what he thinks. And uh, you know, I always take it on board because, as he said, he was he was brilliant for me growing up, uh, and he certainly still loves the game now, which is which is terrific. Uh, he said, apparently he said to you, just play whatever team you're in, play for that moment, concentrate on what you have to do to win that game of cricket. It's pretty sound advice to any cricketer. Yeah, that was that's probably one thing that's really stuck with me. It was actually at a at our you know national under nineteens championship. I'd I'd come off my debut for New South Wales, and you know naturally when you play other teams, I think the bowlers probably went up ten ten percent when I Couldn't went out there. Yeah, and I guess I just put on some probably unnecessary expectations that I needed to go out and you know score x amount of runs, which um, which I didn't. You know halfway through the tournament, and then uh, either had dinner with dad, I can't remember, or he might have just rung me up and just said, yeah, just just to forget that and just you know play for the situation in the game and, and play for your team in that moment and the rest will sort itself out and manage to, to score some runs after that and it's just been advice that's, that's really stuck with me. Yeah, it's very sound advice especially while your name's being thrown around the test stuff. Now let's go back to the beginning almost six years ago at the age of 18 years and 206 days old you became the youngest batsman to score a century in Sheffield Shield history so you made 157 on debut against Western Australia. Does that feel like a long time ago? I mean, it's almost six years ago. Yeah, geez. Uh, it's, it is interesting hearing you say that. But uh, no, I mean, time flies, doesn't it? Especially when we're, we're lucky enough to do what we do as, as professional cricketers. It, uh, you know, time can go by quick. But look, it doesn't feel too long ago. I certainly feel like I've learned a lot a lot from that experience and you know and certainly from that from that point in time so uh haven't given it much reflection to be honest it's probably one of those ones where you you look back and reflect on post-career but no it was it was a great day and obviously a, a nice way to to get out there and start my career now talking to the australian newspaper you said without a shadow of a doubt i'm a different person to what i was two years ago i had a contract it's a good feeling and it's hard not to get swept away with that a little bit so I guess how have you changed and matured? How have you evolved from that to where you are now? Yeah, it's a good question. Oh, look, I guess, you know, I obviously made my debut that year and the following year picked up my, my first contract and uh, it's just a completely different, you know, life, game, whatever you want to call it, going from training twice a week at, at club cricket and then playing on a Saturday to being in here Monday to Friday and, you know, having two days of, of gym and running and then, you know, a couple of net sessions and maybe a day off here and there. It was just, it was a really big learning curve and I probably did get a little bit, I wouldn't say lazy, but I guess I just probably didn't know how to how to train back then. It was obviously my, my first year. I At times, it was, was a bit lazy. At times, I was over-aggressive and probably over-trained and again, probably placed too many expectations on myself to, to go out there and, and, you know, do this, do that for New South Wales and it wasn't until the end of that following, you know, that first year where I was contracted where I, where I actually scored some runs for my grade club. You know, once the once the New South Wales season was over and, and the mighty St George Dragons were in the were in the grade finals, you know, all that pressure of, of trying to break into the New South Wales team, you know, was gone and I was able to go out there and 
just be relaxed and, and score runs, which I did, and we obviously won. Oh, sorry, and we, we yeah, we were lucky enough to win the comp that year in first grade. So I guess I guess it's a little bit of that thing. You were so young when you did so well that you know you really had to kind of grow into the role as a professional sportsman at such a young age. Yeah, of course. There's so many. You know, it obviously is the the training and the the actual cricket side of things, but just the the mental side of it as well. It's a, a whole another. Yeah, of course, it's a whole another step up going from as I mentioned before two maybe three training sessions a week to five cricket and maybe a, a few you know physical training sessions as well so uh it was a great experience obviously don't i wouldn't change anything because i've learned a lot um, but certainly still looking to continuously improve today yeah such a young man we're 24 now 24 with, yeah with so much ahead of you i know uh, mike hussey was a bit of a mentor of yours at sydney thunder I read that he gave you a bit of paper with some advice on it. Is there anything that you want to share with us? What sort of advice he gave you? Yeah, I mean, Huss was, he was terrific and he still is. You know, I'm still lucky enough to have a relationship that I've developed with him, you know, at the Thunder and still happy to, you know, to message him if, if I'm feeling something about my game or whatnot. So he's been great. And yeah, I think it was, it was myself and Daniel Hughes uh, back when he was at the Thunder and Huss just sat us down one day. I think we were in Hobart for, for a game and just... Uh, you know took the time to, to write on two pieces of paper and, and hand it to both of us and it was just a sheet of paper with probably 20 to 25 questions on it that he used to ask himself throughout his career and I guess when he played test cricket and uh, you know I can't remember what what everything was on it but it was certainly just things like am I fit enough am I paying enough attention to the mental side of things am I paying enough attention to how what I'm thinking during an innings you know it was just pretty much everything under the sun it was just really good to I guess just see the the second level thinking that great players have which is certainly what Mike had and it was certainly a, a really good experience sounds like a very detailed note which is exactly what I can imagine Mr Cricket providing a young cricketer all right so thank you so much for your time Curtis I want to end this interview with a few quick singles just a f- your opinion on a few things in the cricket world so let's start let's th- do it let's start with the pink ball like it or loathe it like it yeah why uh, I think it promotes promotes results in the in the game, um, which is which is you know great for for the fan. Um, it's very hard to get a get a draw with a with a pink ball, especially when you're playing it under lights. You know it, it can swing and, and seem and do plenty of things. So uh, I think from a from a spectator's point of view, it's great and it's uh, it's exciting to play in. You're obviously not colourblind, then. Otherwise, no, I'm not. Uh, what about Christmas Day Big Bash cricket? Uh, Would you like to see? I it? like it. Yeah, uh, I, I'm a huge NBA fan, uh, and I and I know that their their Christmas Day games are, team? are massive. Oh, I'm actually a Utah Jazz fan. Uh, they're obviously a bit of a, a lesser known team, but a couple of Aussies over there that, that are doing quite well. So I'm right behind the Jazz. Uh, so yeah, I'm a big fan of Christmas Day Big Bash as well. I think it's great for the comp. What about if? In the Big Bash, someone hits a six, then the crowd gets to keep the ball, like in baseball. What do you think of that? Uh, I'm going to have to load that, I think, at the moment anyway. It'd be tough, you know, just with continuous ball changes in cricket. Baseball's obviously different. That is use a new ball the entire time. But cricket, you know, you base your tactics a lot of the time on the on the state of the ball. So I think until they can maybe, you know, or we get to a point where we are just continuously using a new ball or for the entire... Ball. Yeah, or the generic ball, yeah. Um, but until you that happens, until that happens, I don't have to load it. They, they loaded? would love it, yeah. Good. I'm glad you load something. Now, uh, any favourite cricket commentators growing up? Oh, I mean, we used to love Richie Benno, as I think just about everyone everyone did. It was just a, for me, it was just the classic Channel Nine commentary team. To be honest, uh, that was obviously what all cricket was on back Bill then. Laurie, yeah, Tony of course. Greg. Just listening to to all of them as a as a young kid, it was certainly a, a really good experience growing up. Any commentators rub you up up the wrong way? Any annoy you? 
Uh, no, I mean, I, actually, I love listening to Danny Morrison. Uh, I love his antics, especially when he's out there, especially during not too crazy during for the you. IPL. But at times he can be uh, he can be can be pretty crazy. Yeah, but he's a good man. When he dresses up as Indian character, maybe exactly. he's gone too far. Um, what's your favourite ground to play on? Uh, Sydney Cricket Ground. That's my favourite ground to go to. Who's the best opposition sledger? It's tough. There's actually not not a lot going around in in state cricket, you know, these days. To be honest, um, oh look, probably I know when Matt Wade doesn't like someone and and has his opinion on someone that he might not think is very good, he can certainly go pretty hard. But I also know that from playing with him that uh, that Brad Haddon was pretty good at it too. So there's a couple of good sledges there. And to finish up, who's the fastest bowler you've ever faced? Uh, Mitch Johnson. Uh, yeah, comfortably. He's probably. I actually didn't get him at his worst either, but certainly when I did get him, he was still pretty quick. But I also think that when Paddy Cummins gets it right, especially the left-handers, he can be a he can be a real nightmare up into your up into your rib cage. Yeah, it was Mitch Johnson the combination of speed and that awkward angle, that slinging sort of Tomo action, hard to pick up. Yeah, he was. He's, he's probably not as bad to left-handers. I guess looking at Paddy Cummins is quite similar to what Paddy is to lefties, where he kind of can swing it in and up up and under your your kind of rib cage as a right-hander. You know, for Mitch, um, but obviously he. He's just, especially that Ashes series, that last time Ashes series, he was just a complete another level with his aggression and obviously his skill execution was was terrific to watch. Well, you might have to face him again because he's running around for the Scorchers is, again. Yeah. So I think you'll be playing for the Sydney Thunder. Is that right? You've yeah, signed back with the Thunder. Yeah, which is which is exciting. Well, thanks so much for being the first guest on Cricket Unfiltered. Good luck for New South Wales and the Sydney Thunder, and uh, hope to catch up again. Perfect. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Welcome back. You're listening to the News Corp Cricket Podcast, Cricket Unfiltered. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, a.k.a. Menas. I'm here with Ben Horn and Fiona Boland from the Daily Telegraph. And a lovely chat there with Curtis Patterson came across as a very mature young man. What I find surprising, and this maybe points more to Steve Smith than anybody else, that if I was looking just on personality between Curtis Patterson and Nick Maddinson, Curtis Patterson seems ready for Test Cricket, whereas I don't think Nick Maddison did seem ready for Test Cricket. Yeah, that might be fair. I mean, I think um, I spoke to Nick Maddinson earlier this year, and I think he, his reflection on his uh, chance in Test Cricket shows that he, he's matured, and I think he's, he's I mean, he had to take some time off cricket after he got dropped. Yeah, look, I think a big part of it, though, was probably just form. I mean... When you get picked for Australia, ideally you probably want to be in, in cracking form when you get your chance, and he and he probably wasn't setting the world on fire for New South Wales at that point. So I think that was probably the bigger issue. I mean, if you talk to people around Australian cricket, I mean, Maddinson would be rated in the top three talents in in domestic cricket. There's no doubt about that. But he's got to uh, he's got to find consistency. He's had a great start to the one day se- uh, season, and I, I like the way that he and analyzes his chances of getting back in. You know, he knows that he needs an Adam Voges like thousand run season to be considered again. So, you know, he's not under any false impression. I just think though with Curtis Patterson, the way he had that early success making his debut century at such a young age, it forced him to grow up quite young. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he had a great start. I mean he he just he's a guy that comes to the crease and, you know, fills you with confidence that he's composed and all that kind of thing. I mean as he was talking about there, you know, he, he's so consistent at getting solid starts to his innings. And there's a lot to be said for that. I mean... Ed Cowan-like. Yeah. To, you know, to make those 50s consistently, that's a big thing. And, um, you know, his ratio 
of 50s to 100s to 100s is probably not what he'd want. But he scored so many 50s that that's got to count for something. I mean, to, to get to that point Well, so he's just often. got to learn to yeah. take it I to the next level. I think what came through as well, though, is the importance of good influences around you, those senior players and how they it's can farther. play a huge part in how a young career develops. And that it seems he's had that around He's him. got his, his head screwed on. Yeah. All right, now let's move on to this week's cricket headlines. Brought to you by Sydney's Daily Telegraph. Now, the ICC has launched an investigation after the Pune curator was caught in a TV sting operation, allegedly promising to manipulate the pitch ahead of the second one-day international between India and New Zealand. So, if you've seen the footage, it's pretty conclusive that he was the Pune curator was caught. What I have a problem with is that it, it points to a broader problem within India cricket. I mean, if this is so easily able to happen for a one-day international in Pune, I think what will happen during the IPL, what sort of influences are being put on these people in, in Indian cricket that we don't know about? I mean, Ben, you've been there. I mean, am I right in having cons- am I right to have these concerns? I think so, absolutely. And I mean, aside from the match fixing side of things, just the the integrity of pitch preparation is is the other one. I mean, that's what I found most amusing was Pune was the site of that absurd uh, wicket that Australia played on for the first test, which they ironically did win on. But I mean, all these um, guarantees from India that they don't doctor pitches and all that. I mean, it's complete rubbish. And something like this just shows that it happens basically all the time. And, you know, I mean, I guess maybe some people think that that's their right as the home team, but certainly not how most other countries play. I just think the way that he talked about manipulating the pitch, even to favour certain bowlers, you know, scuffing up spots where a certain bowler would aim at. Mm. I mean, if that could happen in an international ODI... He's talking about doctoring the pitch. It reeks of what's happening down the line in Indian cricket. Oh, absolutely. And you're right. I mean, the the IPL and, and all these things, uh, they, they do leave themselves open to, I suppose, to, to malpractice. I, I think the IPL has cleaned its act up a lot since it started. But, yeah, I mean, it, it just shows that India do not often get held accountable for, for things like this. And the ICC are scared to come down on India during the... Australian series there, despite some of the outrageous stuff that was going on, and Australia were obviously in some parts guilty as well, but not one single charge handed down in the entire series by the ICC, which was just absurd. I mean, you know, like there's just a, there was just a different set of rules. So, you know, until the ICC really stand up and show that they're in charge of the game, there's always going to be that impression that India is running the show. I'm taking a hidden camera if I go to India. That's my <laughs> that's my lesson from that story. Okay, in big news in the media world, Chris Gale is in Sydney, but not to court big bash teams, but he won a defamation case against Fairfax Media around allegations that he exposed himself to a massage therapist during the Cricket World Cup in 2015. Well, Fiona and Ben, this comes pretty close to you guys. I mean, what does it mean when something like this is handed down? Well, it basically means that the story couldn't be proven. So there was not enough evidence to say that it actually happened. And the jury has decided that for that reason, the SMH being held accountable for the defamation of of Chris Gale. I don't think it's going to change the opinion of Chris Gale in this country. I don't expect to see him playing Big Bash or anything in the near future and I hope 
not again. <laughs> he's proven himself to be an unlikable character and he's certainly received that sentiment around this country. This result, I don't think, will change many attitudes towards him. I agree. I don't think he will be back here and he certainly shouldn't be back here again. I mean, as for the the case itself, it's probably a bit hard to really comment on, except that the journalists involved, Chloe Sauto and Chris Barrett, I would consider up there with the best that I've ever encountered in, in my time working in sports. So uh, their professionalism and their um, and their work is, you know, as good as I've seen. So, I mean, I have no idea how the courts come up with these these decisions. Um Certainly, uh, yeah, I'd be backing those two journalists to be doing their their due diligence. It's a tough one, though, because there was such a media storm against Chris Gale. They ran with this story, and uh, they're now paying the price for it, unfortunately. It got caught up in, in sentiment and emotion, I think, and maybe that's affected the verdict. Yeah, I'll be careful what I write from now on. (laughs) All right, now we're going to end this podcast with one last headline. Now, Ben, I read a very interesting article from you on the weekend that Cricket Australia is pushing to have a major ICC event in America and perhaps staging matches in New York's Central Park. Is this an actual possibility? Well, certainly playing a World Cup event in the United States is. I think that that's something that the game... We'll seriously look at it. It's not happening anytime soon. Uh, the next cycle, which is from 2023 onwards. So I think it would be common sense for the game to look there. Uh, Shane Warne took three matches with uh, you know retired players there. This was something that happened with very minimal notice and, and organisation. And he was pulling crowds of you know, around 30,000, 35,000 to these matches at baseball diamonds. So anyone who's been to America would know that there's a huge... Uh, population there from expats who have subcontinental backgrounds and, uh, and some Aussies. And some Don't Aussies. forget about us. Yeah. The Aussies are starting to go there more than Europe. Yeah, yeah. They're taking so over New York. The big, uh, the big issue, and the, the whole reason why that Central Park idea has been proposed by James Sutherland is. Obviously, the issue for cricket in the United States is where do you play it? Mm. Because you don't want to play it out in the boondocks down in Florida where no one's actually... It would just be an irrelevant event if they played it on actual proper cricket fields out of the big cities. I mean, you talk about those warning matches. The one that seemed to get have the most atmosphere was the one in New York. Yeah. And they played in Houston. It was quiet there. So, I, I, yeah, I'm yeah. not surprised. But, yeah, the big stadiums Dodgers. where it's in, you know, it, it's... It's it's it, people are going to be paying attention to it. That's imperative. But where do you play it? I mean, you can't have a proper cricket game on a baseball diamond. So um, th- that's the challenge for for cricket to overcome that. James Sutherland, he knows that it's an out there suggestion, but you know that's I'd probably go. how I'd go. You'd go, wouldn't yeah. you, Fiona? I'd go. I'd love Trip to, to New go. York. Yeah. Use Corporal Fly this podcast yeah. over, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, it's only the first show. I might need to freeze myself, so I'm still doing this job in 2030. Or <laughs> the other thing that would probably appeal to Americans is the length of cricket. It can be a hurdle to appeal to some cultures because it takes so long to play it. I know my husband's Italian and he just flat out says, it's too long, I cannot sit and watch it. <laughs> Americans are used to watching long sport. The fact that Australians sometimes can't tolerate how long American games go for. So I think cricket could be something they get T20 on board Especially T20 cricket. With. A T20 World Cup there would go off. Yep. All right, that was the Week in Cricket headlines, and that was the very first Cricket Unfiltered podcast from News Corp. Ben, thank you so much for coming in. I'm sure it will be all Ashes build up for you now. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. I'm looking forward to the Shield game in Sydney this week, on starting on Saturday at Hurstville Oval. That'll be 
I think, very, very significant for the picking of the team. And are you one of those media people that is going to jump on the English team when you see them? I mean, is it, you know, the, the English team talks about how they're going to cop it from the Australian media. Are you going to be uh, giving it to them? Well, it might be up to them to decide what they want to do on Ben Stokes before uh, before we decide that. But, yeah, look, I guess it's, it's always part of the theatre when the opposition team comes in, but that they will know that they have the potential to leave themselves open to a lot of ridicule and condemnation if they make the wrong decision on, on Penn State. <laughs> and Fiona, I know you're building up to the Women's Day-Night Ashes Test in Sydney. It's going to be, I mean, it's historic uh, and it's going to be really exciting. It's going to be very exciting. The team have made their way down to Sydney. I think they might be basing themselves in Canberra. They have a tour match this weekend and then the, the team will be picked from that. England are playing the CA11, so it'll be interesting to keep an eye on both the, uh, the sides there. The and women's CA11. This concept yes. has jumped from men to women. Yep. That's a bad thing. <laughs> I don't like the CA11. Uh, all right, listeners. Well, thank you so much for downloading Cricket Unfiltered. We will be here next week and every week all summer. And I said we'll have daily Ashes reports after every day of the Ashes, the men's Ashes, that is. So stay tuned. Get in touch via email or Twitter. Subscribe to the show. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>